I just want to also say uh, congratulations to the class of 2020. Uh, many of them had their graduations yesterday, some uh, in the next coming weeks. But our prayer is that God would just direct your guys' steps in the forward, going forward, that you will uh, keep your fo- eyes focused on Him and that He'll bless your past. And that's our prayer. So today we, um, we did the second week of a sermon I started last week on Acts 12, and we'll finish it today. Last week we kind of did just an introduction and then the first five verses, and today we'll do the rest of the chapter. Um, but there's a couple of things that I want to recap before we start today. First of all, we saw that King Herod I was in control, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the, uh, the one on the throne when Jesus was born, and this is his grandson now that's in control when we get to Acts chapter 12. We see that Herod the Great had a little different plan on how to stop the church. He decided the best way to stop the church is to focus on the leaders of the church and stop them. If you stop them, then you'll stop the church. So that was his plan. So first he had the apostle James arrested and had him killed. Now that was a huge blow to the church in Jerusalem. James was one of the key leaders and one of the closest friends of Jesus during his life one of his 12 disciples. So now James is dead. Now King Herod Agrippa has Peter arrested. Peter is arrested. And when we stopped last week, Peter was in prison, and Herod Agrippa is planning to bring him out of prison as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. It's during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so as soon as that's over, he's going to bring him out. When he brings him out, He knows that the Jewish people will cry for him also to be executed. And he'll have him killed also. So last week we finished with verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I said this last week before we started. I'm going to say it again. Either you believe the Bible, including the supernatural works that we're going to see today, Either you believe it or you don't. If you truly believe it, though, your entire life should be built on the words of God. Because when we look at today's passage, when you see how powerful God is, if you believe that but yet live your life as if God doesn't exist, that makes no sense at all. No sense. Now, you may be here and you say, you know what? I just don't believe the Bible. Well, basically then, the Bible's not your authority. You decided you're your own authority. You're basically your own God. And you're going to decide what's right and wrong for decisions that you make. If that's your mindset, I'm glad you're here today. Because as I speak this morning, I pray that God would speak to your heart to show you that He is real and that He is alive and that He's powerful. Let's pray before we open up His Word. God, thank You for Your Word. And I pray today as we study Your Word that You would speak to us from Acts chapter 12. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we start off in verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Herod was about to bring Peter out. 
It was on that very night, is what the Bible says. Now, remember, last week we talked about that they had the Passover, which was the biggest celebration Jews had, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that would, ha- that would last eight total days. So it is almost to the end of that time. Because the Bible says on that very night, right before Herod's about to bring him out, it's the very last night that Peter's going to be in prison. The next day, he's going to be brought out of prison. He's going to be presented to the Jewish people, and they're going to cry for his execution, and they're going to get it. It's the very last night. I want to stop for a second and make this statement. God is never late. God is never late. His timing is always perfect. It may seem to us that he's late at times. It may seem that way to you. It may seem that way to me. But God's never late. He waits in this story to the very last moment to move. Do you remember the story? Actually, I think I preached on it about six months ago. It's the story of Mary and Martha and her brother Lazarus. Lazarus had gotten really, really sick. So Mary and Martha get a messenger, and they say, go find Jesus and take this message to him, that our brother, your dear friend Lazarus, is sick. So the Bible says the messenger brought the message to Jesus. And then the Bible says Jesus waited a couple more days before he went to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Now, you would think, man, if he's a good friend, man, he's going to take off right immediately. The Bible says, no, he waited a couple more days, and then he went. And if you know the story, you know when he got there, Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead four days. But God's timing's always right, because God raised Lazarus from the dead. To, To the human perspective, man, Jesus is late. Oh, he's way too late. To God, he got there right on time. His timing was perfect. You know, we may not always agree with God's timing. Matter of fact, we may just outright disagree with God's timing. But God is all-knowing, and we're not. We're not. He sees the whole scope of the universe. We don't. God is never late. Peter here, the Bible says, was chained and sleeping between two soldiers. I'm trying to imagine this. I mean, when I sleep, I like to have my part of the bed, and Candace needs to stay over there. I don't want, you know, I have to have my area. I tell her I get about a third of the bed, and she gets the rest when I tell her. I don't know if that's really true. But anyway, uh, you know, that's what, I mean, imagine Peter sleeping here. The Bible says he's chained on both sides. He's got a soldier on both sides. I can imagine this guy, soldier, to his left, turned. I guess it pulls, I, I don't know. I mean, not a great way to sleep, right? Wouldn't you agree? It says also there's sentries, which are basically watchmen. Their job, they have one job, is to watch the doors to make sure nobody escapes. That's their one job. Day and night they watched. The Bible says that Peter was sound asleep. Peter, knowing that the next morning that he'd be killed, He is sound asleep. He wasn't awake, biting his fingernails, all nervous. The Bible says he's asleep. Matter of fact, he was asleep hard because we're going to see in the next verse, the angel has to kick him or move him to wake him up. 
When we look at the New Testament, Peter's one of the main characters. Another one of the main characters is the Apostle Paul. And I want to share with you something that the Apostle Paul said that I believe Peter understood. Peter's getting ready to be killed, but he's sleeping because I think he understood what Paul was saying. Paul said this in Philippians 4. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, let's be honest. Don't worry about anything. If I asked you guys to raise your hand, who, who in here never worries? How many would you raise your hand? And then if I saw some hands, I'd probably speak next. How many lie in church would be my next uh, thing I'd ask? We do, don't we? We worry about things. We get anxious about things. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, we may say, well, Paul, you just don't understand. Just like Jason was talking about, we've lived in a difficult year. It's 2020. With the coronavirus, the pandemic, everything that's going on. Y'all know what else is going on. In our culture, a lot of things to be concerned about. Paul, it's easy for you to say, but you're not alive today. Actually, Paul had experienced much worse than any of us know anything about. The Bible says three times Paul was shipwrecked. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in being shipwrecked one time. He was shipwrecked three times. The Bible says one time he was shipwrecked. He stayed at floating the sea day and night. Now, when I think about being out in the sea in the middle of the night and it's dark uh, and something bumps into my foot or leg, I mean, that's, that's not for me. Paul lived through that. Shipwrecked three times. The Bible says he was beaten with rods three times. What does that mean? That means people got rods. They literally beat him to kill him. Their objective was to kill him. And they beat him. He suffered through that. The Bible says five times he received 39 lashes with a whip. That is called flogging is what it's called. You might say, why 39 lashes? Because it was against the Jewish law to beat a man more than 40 times. They considered that to be inhumane to do that, to beat a man more than 40 times. So these religious leaders, they were so worried about breaking the law, they decided, well, somebody might miscount. And they might accidentally do it 41 times, so, so we can't let that happen. So we're going to back it up. 39 is the most you can whip somebody. These guys, men are full of grace, wasn't they? When a man was flogged, and Paul had this happen to him five times, his hands would be tied to a post, and his back would be exposed. And they would take a whip, a leather whip, and most of the time they would tie Fragments of bones, sharp bones to the end of that whip. So that when it made contact with the back and the flesh, it would rip the flesh open. Some people, when they were flogged, they died from bleeding to death. We know the Bible says Jesus was flogged before he was crucified. And he was beaten so bad that he could not even carry his own cross to be crucified. Paul had that happen to him five times. Because of the gospel. The Bible says that Paul was stoned with rocks. You know what that means? That means they got a hole and they throw you in it and they take rocks and they throw it down trying to kill you. And they killed people by stoning them. He was stoned. He didn't die though. He experienced great hunger, thirst, 
cold, nakedness. Yet the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, the whole verse, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. He understood that peace. He didn't live a peaceful life, but he understood that peace that only God could give. Now Peter's experiencing that peace. Peter knows his future is to be executed, but he's sleeping because of that peace in God. Verse 7, and behold, let me stop right there. Anytime we see and behold, that means listen closely to what God is getting ready to do. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. You know, like I said a minute ago, you either believe this or you don't. The angel's there. He stands up, and his chains fall off. The angel, it says, basically has to strike him to wake him up because he was so sound asleep. It seems like Luke, who's writing this, the author of Acts, was a doctor by profession, a detailed guy. It seems like he loves sharing every detail of how the angel rescues Peter here. He's telling everything. He's telling, yeah, the angel had to, had to move him to wake him up, and then he has to basically tell him, get dressed and get your sandals on. That's what we're going to see in verse 8. Look what it says. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Get dressed. Get your sandals on. Get your cloak. Put it around you. Because we're not staying any longer. Verse 9. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. See, Peter had seen visions before. He thought, oh, I'm, I'm just seeing a vision. He had no idea what was happening was actually real. And one thing I want us to think about there is Peter had zero percent to do with his escape. Zero. He didn't even know it was real. He didn't even know what was going on. It was 100% a God thing. God was delivering him. And look how God delivered him. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. So you get this. They walk and they walk by one of the sentries, basically. Guys, the watchmen. And they just walk right by him. And then they walk by a second guard just right by him. How does that happen? These guys, their job was to make sure nobody escapes. And here they go, right by them. How do you explain that? God's supernatural hand. How else can you explain that? And then the Bible says that they got to the iron gates. The iron gates, in, in all the major cities that have walls and they have these iron gates, the iron gates was super heavy and super large. They were supposed to defend the city in case the enemy attacked from the outside. You could not get through these gates. The Bible says that the iron gates 
Open up. I said this in the first uh, service. We thought in the 19th or the 20th century we were smart by inventing automatic doors. They had them back then. Jesus had one. I mean, God had one there. It just opened up. They walked to it and it opened up for them. The largest hurdle to Peter's release was just opened up easily by God. I spoke to someone recently in our church, and uh, I won't share his name because I didn't ask him beforehand, but I, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't mind. He was talking about his life, and in particular, his line of work. And he shared this with me a couple weeks ago. He said, God opened door after door for him in situations that were absolutely closed doors. Absolutely iron gates. There was no, there's no way he could get through them. And in his own words, he said, but God provided a way. Peter had no hope of escape. But God provided a way. God provided a way. He was on the street now. He was a free man. And the Bible says the angel just disappeared. The angel was gone. Now I want you to remember, last week when we left, what we said, what was going on during all this, the church was earnestly praying that God would release Peter. That God would save Peter. That God would rescue Peter. That's what they're praying. And now we see what God is doing. Verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people. All the Jewish people were expected. He's like, There is no doubt God has rescued me from Herod and from what the Jewish people wanted. They wanted me dead. God's rescued me. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. The Bible says when he realizes he's out in this open street, it's not safe, that he goes to the house of Mary. Mary was the mother of John Mark, which we also seem just called Mark at times. He is the author of the gospel of Mark. That this is his mother, Mary. She was apparently a very wealthy person. She owned a large home in Jerusalem. To do that, it took some money. Uh, her home had to be large because the Bible plainly says many from the church were gathered there that night praying. Some believe that Mary's house was possibly the location of the Lord's Supper that Jesus took the disciples and had the Lord's Supper shortly before he was going to die and be crucified. But on this night, gathered together, were men and women of faith praying earnestly for Peter's protection, for Peter's rescue. We don't know the exact number, but the Bible says many. Verse 13. And a servant... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. All right, so you get this picture? So Peter here is knocking on the outer gate. For the wealthy people, they had homes that would have little walls around them with gates. They'd have a courtyard, and then they'd have their living quarters. So he's outside the courtyard, outside the gate, knocking. 
and probably saying things like, hey, let me in, let me, you know. And the Bible says that Rhoda heard his voice. And as soon as she heard his voice, she knew it was. She knew it was Peter. Now that tells me one thing. That tells me Peter must have visited Mary's house a number of times. That Rhoda, his servant girl, immediately recognized his voice as soon as she heard it. And so what does she do? She does not do what you would logically think she would do. She does not go and let him in. The Bible says she leaves him at the gate. And she runs inside to tell the believers that Peter's outside knocking on the gate. All right? Now, when I read stuff like this, to me, it just makes me say how authentic God's Word is. That it includes something like, I mean, that ain't making sense. Why would somebody make that up? That this girl wouldn't do the logical thing. Instead, she runs inside in her excitement to tell the believers that Peter is at the gate. But look at the response of the people. In verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel? I mean, they had no clue. They're like, first of all, they're like, Rhoda, you're, you're crazy. You're crazy. There's no way he can escape prison. Now, there wasn't any way he could escape prison. But there was a way God could get him out of prison. But think about this thing for a second. The Lord has just rescued Peter from certain death. The church has been praying all night for the Lord to do exactly that. And yet the believers wouldn't believe the servant girl that it actually happened. Let's be honest. How many times have you prayed about something and afterwards you think to yourself, that'll never happen. Nothing will change. My prayers are basically a waste of time. How many of us have thought that? We might not have said it, but we've thought that. I find this is reinsurance in this passage. That even in this extraordinary time that the disciples were living, there was a mixture of faith and doubt, even among the believers. They didn't believe that Peter could possibly be free. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. He continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They opened the door and there he was. And the Bible says they're amazed. And I think that's the perfect word. Because when you're amazed, there's no logical way to explain what you're seeing. And that's what they were doing. They were astonished. They could not believe Peter was there. Verse 17, but motioned to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The Bible says, apparently, man, they were making a, they were making a commotion. They were so excited, I can understand. This is in the middle of the night, maybe early morning. He's like motioning them, hey, shh, don't wake everybody else up. Don't let everybody know that I'm here. And he says, and he explained how God had released him from jail, how God had brought him out of that cell. And he says, go and tell James and the brothers. Now, remember, we studied about James in the first part. That was James, the apostle, that was one of Jesus' disciples. This is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, that didn't become a follower of Jesus after resurrection. He would later go and write the book of James. 
This is the James that he's referring to. Go and tell him what God has done. And Peter knew that he needed to leave Jerusalem. He needed to go to a safer place. So the Bible says that he left him. Now, how do you think the news went of Peter's release when Herod found out? How do you think? I mean, let's face it. The next day was the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the big day. That was the day they were going to bring him out. He was going to be executed, and his popularity, King Herod Agrippa's popularity, would go through the roof. He already had James killed. The Jews loved that. Oh, they'd be so excited that Peter's dead also. Verse 18. Now, when day came, there were no little disturbance among the soldiers or what it became become of Peter. No little disturbance. I, that's great. Great wording. No little disturbance. I mean, I bet you it was pandemonium. I bet these guys were like running around. I mean, just chaos. They were going to these two guys, chained to them. Explain what happened? Where'd he go? I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. How is that possible? You were chained to him. They went to the sentries. Your job was, you had one job, just to guard and make sure nobody escaped. Definitely not Peter. What happened? I didn't see anything. I, I, I can't explain it. You can't explain it. You can't explain the supernatural work of God. It happened and they didn't even know it. He escaped from right among their, their grasp. Verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. When Herod found out, man, he had, he, he had to go himself to the prison. He had to see. Because this was going to be a PR nightmare for him. He was so excited about Peter being killed and all, you know, his approval rating. And now, he had let Peter escape. That was going to be embarrassing. It says that he investigated the sentries, the watchmen. They couldn't tell him anything. The Bible says he had them put to death. The Roman law detailed that a guard who allowed a prisoner to escape must receive the penalty that the escapee would have received. Instead of Peter dying, the sentries were put to death. Peter now is free, and the church continues to grow. But what happens with King Herod Agrippa I? The Bible tells us. Verse 20. When Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, he went, he, and, and they came to him with one accord and had persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Who was in control? 
To seek glory for ourselves is really to declare war against God. Because God is a jealous God. We think of jealousy, we always think of that being a bad thing. For God, it's not a bad thing. God is the only one who has complete right to be jealous because he deserves all the praising. Who was in charge? Definitely not Herod. God was in control. Herod was struck down and the word of God increased and multiplied. And this was precisely what Luke wanted us to understand when we read Acts chapter 12. He wanted us to know that ultimately, history is not shaped. History is shaped and changed not by kings, not by dictators, not by presidents, but by a sovereign God who puts forth his hand in power. And prayer is the key that turns the lock of history. Do you realize that? Peter was released because of prayer on his behalf by the church. Because prayer changes things. It does. It changed things in the first century. It changes things today. I hope you come away from a two-week study of Acts 12 with two things, two, two parts of application. Number one, I hope you come away with a renewed confidence in God. That you read a story like this, and if you believe God's Word, you say, you know what? There is no limits to God's power. None. There's nothing that God cannot do. The second thing, I hope you're challenged individually to evaluate your prayer life. How is your prayer life with God? How are you doing? Is prayer an important part of your life? Is prayer something that you sincerely seek God's face and you pray to Him? You know, what I believe is many believers today struggle in this area of prayer. They struggle. And I think there's really three main reasons, three hindrances that people struggle in prayer. And I'm going to kind of close out with this real quickly. Number one, I think there's a lack of dependence on God. I think people are just, we've got this. We don't need God. Man, I don't need to pray to God. I'm, I'm independent. I, I can do it on my own. I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to tell you who thinks that way. Fools think that way. We desperately need God. God is in control. You know, Jason mentioned earlier, there's nothing happening today that God, he's way ahead of this. Everything's in his control. We may not understand it. We may not even like it. But God is in control. I can promise you that. Second thing that hinders our prayer life is vagueness. And what I mean by vagueness is, I think a lot of times in the church, we pray, but our prayers are so generic and lame. They're prayers from our head, things that we know, but they're not prayers from our heart. We say things because, and we pray because we're the church. We're supposed to pray. But in our hearts, we don't even believe them sometimes. God is looking for people that earnestly seek Him in prayer from their heart. We cry out to God. We cry out detailed prayers to God. You know what happens when you pray detailed prayers to God? When they're answered, there's no way to explain it except for God heard me and God answered my prayer. 
God don't want us praying some lame prayers. He wants us to be detailed. A third huge thing that hinders our prayer life, though, is unconfessed sin. When we got sin in our life that's not confessed before God, it blocks our relationship with God. We got things that, that we're doing that's unpleasing to God, and, and we just have not asked, we're not repented, asked God to forgive us. It, it'll destroy your prayer life. It may be one of the reasons that we're not seeing God moving our prayers. It's maybe because of life that we're living. And we need to seek God and confess and be dependent on Him and trust Him. Because I promise you, God is still on the throne. He's still alive. I want to close this with maybe a little different way we're going to do the invitation. Um, I want us just to take a moment and let you just talk to God. And I would encourage you to do two things. Number one, praise Him for who He is. That He is sovereign King. Thank Him that we worship Him. And secondly, I want you just to cry out to Him about your prayer life. I don't know about your prayer life, but if it's strong, thank Him that He is strong. And pray that He would even make it stronger. But if your prayer life is weak, or if your prayer life is basically non-existent, ask God to help you Ask God to give you strength. Ask God to help you see that you need to be dependent on Him. That you need to confess sin in your life. That He would move so that you could have communion with Him. That we could pray and see God mighty move today in 2020. Just like we see in the Scripture.